see. There we go. Now it's working on the phone. So that'll that'll do it for us. <coughs> so some people like to think through it. I was reading a systematic theology book um, that he was thinking through it. The Father, his work prior to even the foundation of the world in planning redemption, and then the Son's work in purchasing it, and then the Spirit's work of how he seals us, but then he applies every aspect of salvation. Um, one of the big ones that we think through as it relates to the Spirit's application of salvation to us is regeneration, how he makes us new. That's the Second Corinthians 5. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's that he renews our heart. So there's the punctiliar action of that. At the moment of salvation, we're a new creature. And then he continues to change us and renew us in the spirit of our minds. So we'll look at that. But I'm thinking through it just chronologically. So point number one, point two on our outline, but point number one would be prior to the salvific moment. So we'll start into that today talking about God's forbearance. Um, I think that's a good place to start when we think of salvation. And then we want to talk through in the weeks ahead, election, foreknowledge, etc. The things that God did prior to saving us. Then we want to talk about at the salvific moment, when we ourselves were saved, what happened? What was the change that took place? So we want to talk about the application of the atonement, like faith and repentance, and then the results of the, of the atonement, justification, regeneration, etc. And then, Lord willing, we'll finish out the study talking about what happens following the salvific moment of progressive sanctification, God's preservation of his saints, eternal security, etc. So that's kind of how we're patterning our study. Last week, we looked, um, we developed some key questions, the ones that I had down, and then we talked about, are there second chances? And then how much faith does it take? So we want to discuss the true nature of faith. We worked on a definition of salvation just a little bit. Um, Pastor Jeff's is, is pretty helpful. Remember, point one was it dim, um, salvation implies four truths. Number one, a gracious actor, in other words, a savior. Number two, it implies a helpless object, one who is being saved. Number three, it implies a disastrous fate, in other words, death. And then number four, it implies a glorious deliverance. In other words, eternal life. Um, it's God's rescuing us from our sin and sin's disastrous consequences. Then we just highlighted, we briefly mentioned um, what theologians call the Orda Salutis, the order of salvation. And we went and we read briefly Romans 8, 29 to 30, Remember, it's explaining how God works all things together for good to those who love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. <clears throat> so he says, those whom God foreknew, he predestinated. And those whom he predestinated, well, we could go over there if you want, or I can just read it. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So Paul gives us somewhat of an order there from foreknowledge to predestination to the calling. And kind of that's the point of why he starts talking about it. Paul's the master of taking a little rabbit trail. 
he says, those who are the called according to his purpose. And he's like, wait, let me back up. Let me tell you who are the called. It's the ones who are foreknown, who are predestined, who are called, who are justified, who are glorified. But then theologians like to wax eloquent and talk about, okay, so in what order do all of these things take place? And it's a logical order um, for the most part. Obviously, predestination and foreknowledge occurred prior to the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1. But then we have things like faith, repentance, justification. In what order do these fall? Is someone, one of the big questions theologians go back and forth, and it relates with the discussion of Calvinism versus Arminianism. We'll get into that a little bit, um, probably next time as we talk about election and foreknowledge. But the question of, is someone regenerated prior to faith, or do they trust Christ, faith, and then they're regenerated? So theologians like to debate back and forth about questions like that, that at the end of the day, well, faith means you're regenerated, and someone who's truly regenerate has faith. So either way, they go hand in hand. They're inseparable is kind of the point. So we talked about that. Did anyone have any extra comments or questions on that that you wanted to talk about before we move on? I only bring it up so that you're aware of it, at least. Brother Gordy? So, do you think that foreknew means God knew who would trust him, and then predetermined would mean he determined beforehand what the results of that would be or who that would be? That's a good question. I mean, so that's the million dollar question. Yeah. The foreknowledge piece, that's really at the heart of, um, that's one of the key questions of the debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Pastor just preached it in Ephesians 1 and gave his view that God's foreknowledge was based on that he foreknew, he foresaw our faith. He knew who would believe and therefore he elected them. Um, the other, the flip side of it is Calvinism says it believes in unconditional election. In other words, God elected some based on the goodness of, of his own character, not based on something good in them. So it's unconditional. And then, so that he predetermined what Calvinism is trying to say is he predetermined who would be saved, not what would happen to them. That's yeah. really kind of the difference, okay? Yep. And predestination, according to Romans 8, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Predestination has a purpose of sanctification. And then predestination in Ephesians 1 has the purpose of he predestined us to the adoption as sons. So I think your point is well made. Predestination is more than just who, but it's what. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's kind of what I was, but, you know, again. Yeah. It's a, it's a sticky subject, and it's been debated for a couple millennia, and it probably won't be solved in our class, but it's worthy of discussion. Well, I, I know a lot of people think of Mm-hmm. I mean, he knew that he wasn't going to. I mean, it was prophesied that he was going to betray him. 
but you gave him every opportunity to come to him. I mean, he had lots of things going on for him, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, he had to cast out devils. He shared, shared the gospel. But it wasn't part of him. Yeah, Judas is a great example. Which is why they debate the order of salvation. Because why wasn't Judas saved? Was it because he didn't believe or because he wasn't elect? And kind of what we start to see in scripture is they go hand in hand. They're inseparable. But it's a fun discussion. Or, I mean, did he believe that he didn't submit? Maybe. Because there's a big chasm between belief and submission. Mm-hmm. There is. That's one of the key questions we want to discuss, the true nature of faith um, as well. And it, it relates with the question of lordship, lordship salvation versus free grace. Um, back under the key questions. Because is quote-unquote belief just an acceptance of facts or is it submission to Jesus as Lord? In other words, allegiance is a good English equivalent. Yeah. But it's important to talk about because you think of evangelism, it's hard to tell someone what is faith. You're like, you just believe. But then there's also the aspect that it changes your life if you truly believe. Ah, see, it's a very practical discussion. Okay, we'll save the election part. Well, we just passed elections. But uh, no, we'll save God's election for next time. But let's let's look a little bit and consider the purpose of salvation. So um, before you look maybe at your sheet, what would you say, just spitballing, what are some ideas you have According to scripture, maybe a passage to back it up if you can think of one. What is the purpose of salvation? And there are more than one, but what is the purpose of salvation? Amen. To save sinners. Any scripture come to mind with that one? Well, since we have it down, 1 Timothy 1 15. (laughs) I mean, that's throughout the Old Testament and New Testament. Mm hmm. Yeah. I just, just yeah. God's purpose to save sinners. So that's First Timothy one fifteen. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That's a good life motto verse. Yeah, Brother Gordy. How about uh, I stand and I knock, and if anybody open, I will come in and sup with them. Early revelation, like one or two. So, if I think one, so the purpose would be to sup with us. Fellowship. Fellowship. Yeah. Amen. To be reconciled unto God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, the purpose of reconciliation, you think of it from a global perspective of Adam and Eve until now, humanity has been in rebellion against God. We've rejected his authority. And so there is enmity. 
And so God's purpose of reconciling sinners to himself, that was the purpose all along of his creation of mankind, was fellowship, so that we could glorify him. And then you have to get to the root of the question, what is belief in Jesus so that you mm-hmm. are reconciled with God? Yeah. Because I know people who believe in Jesus, but God is just not even there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And vice versa, people who believe in God, but know Jesus. But yeah. Yeah. Other purposes of salvation you can think of. Yeah. So, Sari brought up God's glory. And that's crucial. Um, I've got a nice um, quote here. Two quotes, actually, from... John MacArthur, he and a guy, last name of Mayhew, they wrote a systematic theology together. They say, it's a common misconception to assume that God's chief regard in salvation is to sinners themselves. And then a little later, though man is the recipient of God's great love and salvation, he's not the ultimate concern of God's saving grace. God himself and the glory of his name are uppermost in God's affections. And here's the, here's the real kicker. Any view of salvation that exalts man as God's chief regard necessarily denigrates the glory of God. That's a powerful thought. And some people would debate it. Um, some people would say, no, the primary purpose of salvation is to save man. We're at the center of salvation. Yeah. But, as MacArthur made the point, If we put man at the center, what it does is it actually denigrates, it erodes, it deteriorates the glory of God. So let's go look at this scripture and and let's show it. You're there, Psalm 106, 8. Would you read it for us, please? So Psalm 106, remember, that is a psalm. What it's doing is reviewing God's redemption of Israel, how he brought them out of Egypt, how he delivered them through the Red Sea. And God says, I didn't save you just for your own sake. It's for God's name's sake, that he might make his mighty power to be known. Let's look at another one to that effect. Let's go over to Isaiah. Um, There's two in Isaiah. Start in Isaiah 48. Um, Just start back. Well, let's just read from verse one. We'll get some context. Hear this, O house of Jacob which are called by the name of Israel and are come forth out of the waters of Judah, which swear by the name of the Lord and make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth nor in righteousness. For they call themselves of the holy city and stay themselves upon the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning and they went forth out of my mouth and I showed them. I did them suddenly and they came to pass because I knew that you are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew, and your brow brass. I have even from the beginning declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I showed it you. 
lest you should say, mine idol has done them, and my graven image and my molten image has commanded them. You have heard, see all this, and will not ye declare it? I have showed you new things from this time, even hidden things, and you did not know them. They are created now and not from the beginning, even before the day when you heard them not, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. Yea, you you heardest not, yea, you knew not, yea, from that time that your ear was not open, for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and was called a transgressor from the womb. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. Behold, I have refined you, but not with silver. I have chosen you in the furnace of affliction. For mine own sake, even for mine own sake will I do it. For how should my name be polluted, and I will not give my glory unto another? Essentially, God says, I gave you all of this. I did it. And why did I do it? So that you couldn't say my idol did it. God is the one who has accomplished all these things. And he, it's just amazing. Think about that. It's for my own sake. My own sake, I did it. And how should my name be polluted? The key concept is God closely, closely associated his own name with Israel. And now with us, we're called by his name. And so God's not just delivering us for our own sake, but it's for his. He's put his name upon us. He put his name on Israel. And so that's why he deferred his anger, as it said. That's why they received mercy, for God's own sake, for his praise. But then let's just flip back to Isaiah 43. Chainsaw dust for you, Tim. Oh, man, that stuff, it's like sandpaper in the throat. (laughs) All right, Isaiah 43, verse 25. Who wants to read that one for us? Brother Gordy? Be I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. Mm. Hmm. For his own sake. sake. That's why he blots out transgressions. We benefit, but it's actually all about the name of the Lord. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 says something very similar. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Um, And we see this purpose also where pastor's preaching through Ephesians chapter one. The father planned redemption. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world and predestined us to be adopted as sons. But then it says, to the praise of his glorious grace. That's verse, um, verse six. And then verse 12, talking about the son's purchasing of redemption, to the praise of his glory. And the same in verse 14 after he mentions the spirit's work. It's to the praise of his glory. I love that. When you think about salvation, it's all about God. It's so that we would go, wow, God is so gracious. So, but one more purpose that we see, unless somebody's, any comments on that, thoughts you're thinking on? All right, one more purpose. 
that I think is just, it's just fun to think about. Go over to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's talking about he's the prisoner of Christ, but he talks about how he's received this dispensation or this stewardship of the grace of God. He has received God's grace and this message of the gospel, the message um, concerning the mystery that Jews and Gentiles would be united in one body, the church. Um, He says, I've been entrusted with this mystery, and then he talks about it. Um, Verse 9, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. What's the, what's the purpose we see there in Ephesians 3.10? To teach the angels. To teach the angels. I kind of like the verbiage to show off to the angels. It's to show God's manifold wisdom to these principalities and powers in the heavenly places in the spiritual realm. But he does it through the church. It's to show... God is really wise. Imagine that. Think back to, um, to right after Adam and Eve have sinned. God knows they've sinned. Maybe, I mean, picture it. We're filling in, filling in details. But imagine. Maybe God says, all right. He turns to his angels. Guys, what are we going to do now? Satan's already left us with a third of the angels. What do we do now to solve this massive dilemma? And now Adam and Eve have plunged humanity into sin. What are we going to do? And the angels, oh, I, don't, I don't know. Nobody has a, a good solution to it. And God says, oh, I'll go take care of this. And God just, he shows off. He displays his manifold wisdom. Go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It has something very similar to say um, concerning the angels. Here, he's talking about how the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. That's back in verse 10. Um, and then he gets down here in verse 12. They were searching what manner of time the spirit of Christ, which was in them, did signify. So they're prophesying of Christ, but they don't know when it's coming. And then verse 12. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister these things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. These things concerning what the Spirit of Christ was prophesying of, the gospel of grace through Christ. And the angels, they desire to look into it. So you think about that. I just, I remember being, I don't know, I was probably like an eighth grade or something, and I thought about, wait a second, why didn't the angels get redemption? Why does just humankind get it? And scripture doesn't give us necessarily a, a detailed answer to that question. But what it, what it does for us is helps us go, wow, thank you, Lord, for your mercy and this second chance that we got and that we are recipients of his grace because the angels desire to look into these things. It fascinates them. They're obsessed with the wisdom of God and redemption. 
So there's a threefold purpose, to save sinners, to show off to the angels, and ultimately for God's own glory. Other thoughts on that with the purpose of salvation? For God's reputation and to show his power. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Good. Well, shall we start into uh, shall we start into what happens prior to the salvific moment? Mm-hmm. And I'm not quite going in chronological order. You'll have to forgive me, because we're starting with forbearance instead of election. Election happens chronologically first because it's before the foundations of the world. But forbearance is logically first because if God did not forbear with us, there would be no such thing as salvation. So I wanted to start with this. I think it's helpful. But I gave you, we'll just look at a few thoughts, Old Testament and some thoughts New Testament-wise. But think back to Genesis chapter three. We spent a lot of time back there um, in anthropology and homartiology, talking about the fall of man into sin. What did God tell Adam and Eve would be the penalty if they, eat, if they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You will surely die. In the day you eat of it, he says, you will surely die. God could have destroyed all of humankind right there. That's what we deserved, was immediate death. But God didn't. He forbore. He for he forbore. He was forbearing. He was patient. He made a way. He says, "There's coming the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent." Same thing. Genesis chapter six, chapter six through eight. Remember, God saw. He looked at Earth, and all the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. That's before the flood. God says, it's really wicked down there. And so he puts in action his plan of the flood. And yet God was patient with humankind. Think of it globally, the big storyline. God's patient with humankind and he preserves a remnant through Noah and his family. That's actually what it says over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20. It's talking about um, in the days of Noah... Verse 20 says, which sometime were disobedience, talking about the spirits in prison. So that's a fun passage. I bet, James, I bet that one comes up at men's group this week. The spirits in prison with the Nephilim. Hopefully. Is it in your paper? Oh, good. But these spirits who are in prison, they were sometimes disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So why didn't God just wipe humanity off the planet at the flood? It's because he was long-suffering. He was patient. He was forbearing. Um, let's go. We, we worked on Exodus 34 when, oh, what were we talking about? Generational sin. So let's go to Psalm 103. Exodus 34, though, remember, is where Moses... Um, he says, he asks God, God, show me your glory. And God does 
just the trailing parts. He says, you can't see my face, otherwise you'll die. But he hides him in the cleft of the rock, puts his hand over him, and then takes it off right at the last moment so he can see the, the trailing remnants of God's glory. And that's when he declares the name of the Lord. It says the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord. That's Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. <coughs> so long-suffering. But then Psalm 103, who wants to read for us verse 8? Sarah, you want to do that? Psalm 103, verse 8. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So in Hebrew, we've talked about this before, and Pastor Jeff's um, waxed very eloquently on it before, but in Hebrew, that literally, slow to anger, or what's often translated in Hebrew, long-suffering, it literally reads, long nose. God is long nose, or long face. And the concept of it takes a long time for his fury to come out to the tip of his nose. He's patient. He's slow to anger. Um, but I love that picture. Slow to anger, it's a long nose. Um, we see it um, several times throughout Scripture. Numbers 14, verse 18, that's at Kadesh Barnea. Remember their, their cowardly unbelief. It talks about God's being, the Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy. He forgives iniquity and transgression. It talks about it in Joel. He's calling them to repent, to rend their heart and not just their garments, to turn to the Lord their God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. Um, Jonah, that's a fun one. Um, let's go and look at it. Because Jonah, we're familiar with this story. You know, Jonah won't go and preach this uh, message of repentance to Nineveh because he hates them. So he gets swallowed by a fish and spit out. And then he still has to go to Nineveh. But even then, it does, he does it begrudgingly. Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. This is um, the people, remember, they repent, and they, um, they call this national fast and put sackcloth and ashes on everybody. And God relents of his evil. Uh, he repented of the evil that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. In other words, God turns away his just wrath and saves it up for a later date. But verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Jonah's response. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and repentest thee of the evil. Jonah's throwing a little sissy fit because he knows what God is like. He's merciful and slow to anger. Hmm. I mean, Jonah is not too different than we are sometimes when we want people who do wrong. We're like, why do they get second chances? Hmm. Mm. 
So you can look up the additional texts there if you want. But we get this picture of forbearance. His God is, he's got a long nose. He's long-suffering. He's patient with our sin and our sinfulness. Are you, are you going to say something, Gordy? Uh, just what really strikes me is I look at my own life and it's a proof positive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Proof positive. Mm-hmm. I should have been stricken down long ago. Me too. Proof positive, just look at your own life. I can look at five major things that happened in my life that I should not have lived through. Hmm. And then when I became a Christian, I began to. And I can't even imagine all the little things along the way that I could have zapped my own self. But God was gracious and full of compassion and knew where I would be at the age of 40. Hmm. And, yeah. Yeah. I mean, even once we're saved, He lets us keep living, knowing we're still going to mess up. Mm-hmm. Until that day that you know we're glorifying, but yeah, it's pretty patient. Pretty patient. Amen. Shall we look at some New Testament texts? Round out our thought on this. So we've got two um, two New Testament words in Greek, uh, makrothermia, which I don't remember what I put on your handout. Um, if I put, the, I don't think I put it. I think I put it on the slide. Makrothumia. So it's often translated patience, or sometimes long suffering. Um, it's the most frequently used New Testament word for the divine patience. Um, and literally and picturesquely, it means distance of wrath. God has long wrath. It, there's distance to it. A similar picture to the long nose of the Hebrew. And then there's another Greek word that only comes up a couple times in the New Testament, both in Romans. We'll go look at that. It's anake. Um, That word, it has the idea of God's restraint in the outworking of his wrath. In other words, he holds back. God has just wrath toward our sin, and yet he restrains it. So let's go look at these two texts, Romans 2, to start out with. That one rounds... um, well, Romans 3.25 actually rounds out our thought on the Old Testament, but we'll come to it. Romans 2.4, what he's doing um, at the beginning of Romans, Paul is arguing that we're all under sin. We all justly deserve God's wrath. Um, <clears throat> and he's talking now to the Jew. And he says, verse 3, And think... Thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance. Forbearance there, that's the word anake, and longsuffering. That's makrothumia. Do you despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? The purpose of God's goodness, his patience, his forbearance is to lead us to repentance. And then just turn the page over to Romans chapter 3, verse 25. Um, Paul wants to demonstrate God is still just. 
even though he's forbearing and overlooks, temporarily overlooks sin, justice still must be satisfied. Um, That's verse 25. Speaking of Christ being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now verse 25. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness, to declare God's righteousness or his justice for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. In other words, what Paul is saying is there was no permanent sacrifice for sin prior to Christ, and yet God forgave sins in the past, and he overlooked those sins, and yet justice still had to be satisfied. And that's why Christ paid the price. If God overlooked sins without a sacrifice, without Christ's sacrifice, he would no longer be just. Acts 17 talks about that as well. Um, Talks about the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So God was patient. He gave time. He winked at it. He overlooked past sin, but he calls everyone now to repent because Christ has come and paid it all. 1 Timothy 1 talks about how Christ might show, uh, let's see, which we've got time for probably one more text. Let's, do, let's go to 2 Peter 3 because we've got two verses there. But 1 Timothy 1 talks about, Paul talks about why did he receive mercy? He obtained mercy because he did it in unbelief that Christ might show forth through Paul all long suffering. In other words, if Paul, the persecutor of the church, could receive mercy, God is long-suffering enough for anyone to receive mercy. 1 Timothy 2 talks about, Paul says that he wants men everywhere to pray with holy hands raised because God would have all to be saved. 2 Peter 3, now Peter is addressing, um, he's addressing why has the second coming not yet taken place? Why has God not yet fulfilled that promise? He talks about um, the flood again, interestingly enough. But then verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In other words, Peter's answer is, No, God is not slack. Some people say God is slack. That's why he's not come. That's why Christ hasn't come back. He's just lazy. He's slack. He's not really going to keep his promise. No, actually, it's because God is long-suffering. That's makrathumia. He's patient with us because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Then he talks through that a little bit of the coming day of the Lord that's going to come like a thief in the night. The elements will melt with fervent heat and we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness, verse 13. Verse 14, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless and account or consider it that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation. The long suffering of our Lord is salvation. Boy, that's a good text to finish out our discussion this morning. God's forbearance 
His goodness, his forbearance leads us to repentance. The reason God is long-suffering is so that we could be saved. Thoughts, comments, questions on that? Maybe part of long suffering is he has to let man go through what they have to go through in order for his plan to be. Yeah. So part of long suffering is not just for our sake, but for his plan to be finalized the way he planned on it being finalized. Yeah. Absolutely. Kind of like how he he had the the nation of Israel go into Egypt for a little bit because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. Good. Other thoughts on it? Divine forbearance. It's a good place to start as we start considering salvation. So 